It was the dawn of the third age of podcasting, 12 years after the B5 premiere. The Babylon podcast was a dream given form. Its goal, to discuss Babylon 5 episodes, arcs, and implications, to interview the cast and crew about their experiences and memories. It's a home away from home for fanboys, geek girls, and lurkers. It can be a silly place, but it's our last best hope for B5 fans. This is the podcast about the story of the last of the Babylon stations. The year is 2006. The name of this show is the Babylon Podcast. And welcome back to another Babylon Podcast. I am Summer Brooks. I'm Stilton Calder. <laughs> and it's Jeffrey Willis here in Studio City, California, where it is just about as hot as it is in Atlanta, home to Dragon Con. Yay. How was it, Summer? Dragon Con was amazing. I don't, I don't think I've been to a sci-fi con that big in about 15 years. Whoa. Yeah. That's quite a claim. It was spread I, over I, I three hotels. Three. Three hotels. Wow. Well, I think it's done that the last several years, though, hasn't it? I mean, it's I've never been whole... to one that was spread across three, like, literally. Like, I've seen where you had one main hotel and people were filtering in from the other ones because that one hotel was full. I've never been to a con where you had three hotels that were the official con hotels where all three of them had huge events. Well, that's kudos to those guys yeah. for, for keeping, you know, truly the largest show continuing to be largest <laughs> over and over and over. That's, that's yeah. That's, that's and, and, of course, they're all at the red carpet for you. They said, here comes Summer Brooks of the <laughs> Babylon podcast. So clear the aisles, folks. Actually, people did come up to me out of the blue just saying, hey, you're Summer, right? And I was just wow. like, yeah. And here's Celeb. the funny part. Here's the funny part. My badge didn't have my name on it. Wow. <laughs> Where did it say Tim Callender? <laughs> no, I was John. <laughs> I was just John. And, uh, just John. <laughs> but I have a question They for heard you my guys. voice, it, so. It, in our opening uh, uh, title sequence there, um, when, when the voice talks about, you know, geek girls, are we referring to Tim? <laughs> you can if you want to. That's fine. I was just, you know, I figured when you said fanboys, I, that would meet me, you know, and... Right. and <laughs> of course, what is it? We Summer would be lurkers. And, I'm so not a lurker. I'm a geek girl, but uh, no, it was it was a lot of fun. We uh, the the I didn't make it to both Babylon Five panels because the Sunday no the Monday one was scheduled at the exact same time that my plane was taking off, so I couldn't be at that one. Um, but the earlier one was packed, was completely packed. There were it was standing room only. All of the seats were full. There were people sitting in the aisles, people along the walls all three, you know, three walls, people flowing out the back door. And they got a standing ovation when they came in. Wow. Yeah, Stephen first played uh, a preview clip from his movie. He, uh, he has a movie coming up on Sci-Fi Channel in October called Basilisk. It looks like it's going to be funny. Right. He, he mentioned that when we talked with him mm-hmm. way back in show one. <laughs> yeah, way, way back in show one. But yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it's done now. It's scheduled to be on... Sci-Fi Channel next month, and it looks it looks pretty campy. A lot, a lot of cool. fun, a lot of fun. Very cool. And Mike, Michael, how did how did the podcast go? 
Oh my, the podcast was insane. Uh, we we did a, a winging it podcast and a slice of sci fi podcast, and I think the winging it podcast has been nominated as the wildest event that happened at Dragon Con. Oh, that's fun. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it was pretty insane. And the Parsec Awards? Parsec Awards were fabulous, and you can listen to that if you would like. Go to ParsecAwards.com, ParsecAwards with an S, dot com, and just click the link, and you can download the sh- download the entire event. The award ceremony is up in MP3. Yeah. Oh, I have oh, to there. throw out one more thing. Um, one person stood up and asked a question of Julie Caitlin Brown at the panel, and he mentioned her interview on the Babylon podcast. And when I yeah. heard him mention the Babylon podcast, I just wanted to stand up and yell. So many, many props and kudos to Jason for doing that. Very nice. Yes, very nice. Very well, nice. Uh, continuing with our uh, tradition of greatness here on the Babylon podcast, we have a super, super duper special guest with us tonight. Um, More super duper than you? Uh, well, you know what, Tim? According to our uh, fan in uh, Australia, there, who who <laughs> thinks I know how you feel about that that fan that that uh, it, you know he's getting tired of all the cosh gags. So I'll let that <laughs> slide today uh, and just move right into uh, letting you know who our secret guest is for today. No longer a secret. We're going to get a chance to have an in-depth conversation with Babylon 5 producer John Copeland. Excellent. Amazing opportunity. He doesn't talk often. He does not do many interviews, but he's going to join us tonight and give us some insight into his unique perspective that he had uh, as the, the, the man in the hot seat on Babylon 5. Uh, I'd also like to mention we have the ability for the, those diehard fans that can't wait they absolutely positively cannot wait to hear the new shows. They can actually listen to us live as we record this. They get to hear it, us in our flubbing, unedited glory. <laughs> <laughs> Boy, and, the novelty uh, will wear off quickly. <laughs> you, you'd hey, be I amazed. Just, I just like it because then you realize how much work I actually have to do on this show. <laughs> I was going to cue the Count Floyd reference. <laughs> oh, it'll be real scary, kids. <laughs> but yes, we have we have the you have the ability to listen to us record live. Uh, those instructions are at the website babylonpodcast.com. We also have a chat room where you can gather while the live feed is going. That's at irc.freenode.net. Pound sign Babylon Podcast is the channel you want to be. Um, and I'm actually in there monitoring. So if you have a question that we don't ask, feel free to chime up. And if it fits with our timing, I will actually get the question in there and let whoever we're talking to know that it's from the fans. That's the cool part about this whole thing is this is truly an interactive show now. Mm-hmm. The more questions, the better. Right. Wow. And <laughs> less pressure on us. Isn't that nice? Well, yeah, like, totally. Like I said, this is this is our our first attempt at this. I've been doing it on winging it for a, a, quite a few months now, and it mm-hmm. seems to work. So we're going to try it here, and see how that right. goes. And if it doesn't work, we can always turn it off. And I'll t- I'll tell you this because I I handle monitoring the uh, Babylon Podcast Gmail account. If they don't like something, they'll let us know. 
And, uh, you know, and to be fair, if they like it, they'll let us know that, too. So, every, you know, we, we have a very vocal group of listeners, and that's really good. So we'll know if it's, if it's well-received or not. All right. So we will take a short break here and come back with our interview with the inestimable John Copeland. Well, there you are, driving home with a friend. You're coming back from doing a good thing. You volunteered at a soup kitchen. And kablam! Some schmuck runs the red light, plows into your car, and poof, that's it. Fade to black. You're deader than disco. But you're a good person. You know that. So you know that your adventure is just beginning. You've earned the eternal reward. Heaven. But what if your heaven wasn't so heavenly? All sizzle and no steak. A non-corporeal conspiracy of sorts. A never-ending bummer that'd be downright blasphemous if it weren't true. Heaven kinda sucks. Could you stand it? If you couldn't, would you leave? Discover other places? What about other heavens? That's what happened to longtime friends Kate and Daniel. And that's what they're doing. They're traveling to heavens of cultures now of your, of other species. There are loves and secrets. The roads are everlasting. Explore the heavens. Find Mer Lafferty's Heaven at PatioBooks.com. Hello? John? Hi, Jeffrey. <laughs> so who has a story to tell <laughs> we didn't even hear the phone ring that's awesome no yeah. that was very cool it didn't even ring john i'd oh, like you well, to meet ring on this it rang on this end <laughs> i'd like you to meet tim and summer my co-host welcome to the babylon podcast john copeland producer of babylon five how are you guys doing hi john how are you hi. good <laughs> uh, we're very honored to have you here today Oh, come on. I'm just a regular person. <laughs> <laughs> well, you may no, be now. You may be now, but for a long time there, you no, were... I was still I was still regular, Jeffrey. I was just still a regular person. Well, uh, that's a perception, sir. Uh, you know what? I think I've said it publicly, and I will say it right here and right now. You were my Yoda. I am eternally wow. grateful to you because you have been a, a tremendous mentor and friend over the years, and um, I owe so much to you that I will never be able to pay back, but there's probably another $5 in the, in the mail on the way to you now. So. Oh, okay. Well, that's good. <laughs> I could always use that. <laughs> uh, so, John, I would love to throw out this first question to you, and, and then we'll just sort of take turns and, and hammer you until you drop. Okay. Um, John, looking back at it now, um, it's, it, I believe you were in an incredibly unique perspective to answer the question and to tell the... Could you please describe, in your opinion, the evolution of the Babylon 5 fan? The evolution of the fan? Yeah. Because um, you were there to see the earliest days, and you see where it is now. Well, I, you know, I think it... I think it spread because you know um, Babylon Five was was um, quite unique in its its 
development process anyway because Joe would go to conventions um, and he did he did a lot of this at at Loscon, which is the the Los Angeles uh, science fiction convention uh, where he would do a panel and he would talk to the fans about what they had seen on television that they liked the science fiction and what they didn't like and what they would like to see and those inner exchanges of information and opinions um, had a lot of impact on on Joe's shaping of things for along five and so you know from from the from the get-go, when we got a chance to do the pilot uh, before, because Warners was was nervous enough that they weren't quite sure whether you know, science fiction, something other than uh, than Star Trek, would work as uh, you know on television. You know, we knew that there was there was already kind of an awareness of the project out there because of what Joe had done at conventions. But you know, we also had um, you know a little bit of a you know, uh, a goal to achieve to live up to what, you know, some of the fans had said that they liked and didn't like about previous science fiction. And so that, um, that's, I think, is, is very unique about, about B5. And a lot of folks, you know, embraced it right away from the, from the pilot because Joe has got a very large presence out, presence out there on the Internet uh, and on the youth groups and, and um you know, so that got folks to to tune in and also to uh, you know express to Warner Brothers their delight in the you know in the pilot, which gave us a chance to have a first season, as it were. Um, I think that that as time wore on, um, there's a there's a few there's a few things that that I noticed out out there is that. Um, Word of mouth kind of spread, and we built uh, audiences. But people got into the characters, and that's one of the things that that is is what makes a television series work and have sort of legs to stand on in television. It's it's not the the really the the stories or the adventure or the visual effects that will bring people back week after week. Uh, people take uh, time out of their lives to sit down in front of the television set for an hour to be with the characters that they like. And, you know, Joe created some incredibly memorable characters. Um, you know, I think, you know, some of the most, you know, best love were obviously were, you know, our aliens like, you know, uh, Jakar and Londo and, and the Lynn and, and then Veer and, you know, Lanier and and everybody else that, that kind of you know passed through the you know that passed through the station. But the other thing that we saw happen as the first season was broadcast that was really kind of gratifying was that people got together to watch Babylon Five. And so here we were, you know, creating a uh, story that was sort of you know bus stop in space where you know. People there was a there were people there, but you know ships came in and brought people into the station. Uh, people would get together and watch uh, the uh, the show together, and then they would discuss it afterwards. There was a group that met um, over in the over in the valley that uh, you know started out you know um, you know getting together to have eat ice cream and, and watch Babylon Five, and then it it finally got so big that they had to find another house because there were more people coming than the living room could accommodate. There was a guy back in Washington, D.C. that had just 
bought a um, a brand new home entertainment system. So he had surround sound, a projection TV, and he put a put a thing up on a on a local bulletin board that uh, you know, hey, anybody wanted to come by on uh, Thursday night and watch Babylon Five was welcome. And he he made a comment um, that that after the first after this this first invitation was that. He had 25 strangers show up at his door, and <laughs> they left as 25 friends. Um, so I, that's I think that that you know B5 had a had an ability. The stories, the the arc of the of the series and everything had a had a um, an ability to bring people together. They wanted to share the experience with with other folks, and uh, you know I haven't really uh, seen that happen with other television shows. Where do you think the fan is now, though? Uh, where do I think the fan is now? You know, probably watching the DVDs, uh, languishing. I, you know, I know that that there that that I don't think anything else has quite sprung up a fandom that I'm aware of now. You know, I'm kind of out of the out, uh, you know, doing documentaries in you know strange locations around the world, but. And not always up on what's going on, but um, I would I think that there hasn't been anything that has quite resonated with the fans. I think that you know Battlestar Galactica has the new iteration of that has certainly come out there and found uh, an audience. Um, you know, my God, you know, NBC Universal is putting the biggest promotion campaign in the history of the company behind the launch of the next season of this because they can smell what this thing has, you know, the legs of being success and becoming a franchise. Um, you know, Paramount saw that with Star Trek. Um, NBC Universal sees that with Battlestar. Unfortunately, Warner's never woke up and smelled the coffee with Babylon 5. <laughs> why do you think that is, John? Why, don't, why do you think that they didn't recognize what they had when they had it? I think it's because we were um, actually not part of the studio. We were part of P10, which came out of uh, domestic television distribution and a um, you know an arrangement between um, you know station groups across the across the country at the at the time the Chris Craft stations and uh, I think Cox and in Keylord. Uh, so we and we were you know kind of. At arm's length from the studio when we when we started up because we were you know doing it very low low budget uh, trying to keep a low profile because for the first three seasons of Babylon Five we um, operated as a uh, kind of a non-union crew um, and you know we were just we were trying to keep a low profile but the, we the the studio didn't really embrace us as their own I mean we had to fight and kick and scream for for publicity and. Um, you know, we, you know, both Joe and I. Uh, I mean, Doug would get, you know, kind of frustrated with us, and and uh, because we would do things that would then, you know, aggravate the publicity folks over at Warner Brothers because we were out there seeking our own publicity. And it's like, you know, well, we don't want to be the most polite little show that ever got canceled because nobody knew that we were there. Um, which on what season four? Uh, we actually retained our own publicists and uh, did a press kit and started getting the word out there, and that actually had a big impact. Um, 
by the end of season four, we were um, the 1,961st most recognizable brand in the United States of all the brands, uh, and the only TV show that was in the recognized brands. We were actually above, uh, you know, Star Wars and Star Trek. I mean, Star wow. Trek didn't even appear on that uh, wow. because of you know what our publicists did, and that, so um, I mean that. That also was what got the TV Guide cover. Um, that certainly wasn't because the Warner's publicity people were out there, you know, saying, "Hey, this is a great show. You've got to give it some exposure on the cover." Um, so, I mean, that's we were we were kind of like an orphan child. We were, you know, kind of owned by not the mainstream. We weren't part of Warner's television, and I think that that had a little bit to do with it. Um, you know, the, the, it's it's interesting because merchandising and uh, and publishing were the were the folks that really, um, you know, embraced the show after you know, probably in the in the midst of the third season. And uh, there were lots of products that were out there that they were selling. The fans wanted product. Uh, you know, they wanted things to spend their disposable income on that was Babylon Five related, and. Um, you know they they kind of embraced it, but you know nobody else really nobody else really did. And I mean there've been a you know a couple attempts at, at trying to put together a movie, um, you know which I've not I've been involved with any of this stuff. It's all been just uh, Doug and Joe. But you know nothing has come to fruition yet. It looks like you know I mean they're doing these uh, you know using B5 and cutting it into you know tiny little webisodes to you know broadcast on uh, mobile phones and on the on the internet, but that's just the old stuff. I know that there were plans to do some direct to uh, DVD releases because you know B5 came out and it was the first TV property that uh, was released in home video by Warner Brothers here domestically in the United States. They didn't they didn't release any of their TV stuff. Um, and they did a the international. Really wanted to do it because it was so popular in the UK. Um, it did very, very well uh, there when it was first released. The uh, first at the the first I think the first week it was out. The uh, top selling video in uh, the UK at the time was Schindler's List, and the next four titles were Babylon Five episodes. Um, so they they brought it out, and then you know it did. Did good for him here, and and my God, I mean, they just found a device to make money to, when they brought out the seasons on, um, you know, on DVD. And so there's there are different or parts of the organization that uh, you know that that B5's got you know fans and staying power, but you know, somewhere somewhere there is a disconnect still there. I think at the studio. Well, so that that only begs the question, John, if if they were so disconnected from what they had with Babylon 5, how did they find it within themselves to give you guys the green light for four years? Well, that's because of the part of the studio that we were part of, domestic television distribution, and uh, and the and this station group, which was a joint venture that was called P10, the Primetime Entertainment Network. Also, um, you know, you should remember it ran the, you know, the mixed adventures of Kung Fu, uh, with uh, you know with David Carradine, which ran for a few seasons, and also Time Tracks, uh, which I think ran for a couple of seasons. But we one of the 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 deal that was sort of laid on the table to us was that we had to live up to what they what 
their business plan said, but they were going to, you know, the, deliver the ratings that they were going to sell their advertising at. And we had to, you know, we had to do it for the revenue that they were able to make for us because they did not deficit finance us. We were, you know, a unique show in that there was not, you know, any money that was deficited on on Babylon 5. And we had to live up to the business plan. And so it was always, uh, you know, a nail-biting exercise every year. Uh, did we do it? Are we going to leave... Um, are we going to, uh, you know, get another get another season? And uh, then one of the one of the happened right at the end of the fourth season was, you know, there was the announcement of the WB and um, UPN and those things coming out, and then Fox also went to broadcasting seven nights a week. That really locked up pretty much all of the stations that were available out there in the syndication market. And so all of a sudden there was no home for Babylon 5. And, you know, Doug um, Netter, you really have to take your hat off to to Doug because he was not going to let this show go by the wayside. And he worked long and hard at finding a new place for it, which gave us the last season on, on, on TNT. And that was, you know, really due to Doug's determination, I think, a lot of us had kind of come to the point to the to the realization or to come to that point in the road where you kind of say, well, you know, all things come to an end at some point, and maybe this is it for for Babylon Five. To the extent that we actually shot the you know the climax of the of the the series, Sleeping in Light, at the end as the last episode of the fourth season, so that if that did really turn out to be our last season, that would uh, you know there would certainly have been closure for the fans because uh, you know neither Joe or myself wanted to have this be a show that just ended that there wasn't closure to the story well having having been at uh, Dragon Con this past weekend I can tell you that from the fans point of view the only panels that were as jam-packed as the Babylon 5 panel was the Firefly panel and the Mythbusters panel <laughs> Oh, myth well. <laughs> yeah, the Mythbusters guys were were kind of kind of packed there, but there were over 500 people in the B5 panel to hear Peter Jurisic, Mira Furlan, Julie Caitlin Brown, and Stephen First talk. It was standing room only. Uh, the, oh, well, that's the, cool. the, the every seat was full. There were people sitting in the sec in the center aisle, people sitting around the edge of the room and falling literally filtering through the back door, standing up in the hallway just to hear mm-hmm. them talk to get more Babylon 5. So the wow. fans the fans are definitely hungry for more. And the most popular question was about the Lost Tales. But uh, my fan question is, do, when you were starting this out, what fan input in terms of what fans were looking for in a science fiction story did you and Joe take to heart and say, hey, we can actually give them this in a good story? Well, I think Joe... Joe really took most of that stuff to heart in the way that he crafted his stories and and his characters and made these also, you know, not just kind of fluff shows. Um, you know, I mean, a big difference between us and, and Star Trek is that everybody, you know, on, well, let's say like Next Generation, everybody on that ship got along. They were all <laughs> friends. They never had it. They never had really a crossword uh, with with each other. And, the ramifications of their actions um, 
didn't resonate through the two episodes that followed. And, and that's all too often something that occurs in episodic television. Yeah. You, you know, you have an episode where somebody struggles with, with uh, you know, drink or, you know, some substance abuse or something like that, you know, some personal problem, and it, you know, kind of they confront it and come to the end of it, you know, for the, the end of that episode, and then for the rest of the season, nothing else is said about it. But, you know, if you look at, you know, how we played with that with, with uh, Garibaldi's character through the whole run of the series... That became a that became a thread, and that became part of the evolution of his of his characters. Um, I think that that the the mantra that we kind of that we kind of operated on is nothing is as it seems. And the, one of the subtexts of Babylon Five is that you know you have to take responsibility for your actions, and that's a lesson that the characters learn again and again. And there were. There were really five people that were involved from the time that Joe kind of said, hey, I have this idea for this television show that were involved with the gestation of, of Babylon 5 through the five years that it took to sell it. And that was Doug, myself, uh, John Acavelli, who was our production designer, and then Ron Thornton, who, uh, and, you know, and of course Joe, but uh, Ron, who created the visual effects and and you know designed so many of the initial uh, spacecraft along with uh, with Steve Berg and uh, you know there was it was a passion for all of us and our pact was to if we'd given the opportunity to make a pilot we would make it as good as we knew how to make a show and then when the opportunity came to make the series we all sat down and we said you know we want to make the series better than the pilot and we want to try to make each episode better than the one that came uh, before it. And that really was something that was that we tried to do every season. And I really think that we were pretty successful at that because I think that the episodes just got better, and I think the seasons got better um, as we, you know, as we got deeper into the life of uh, of Babylon Five. And and it was something that uh, you know everybody that worked on it cared about and I think you know some of that passion came you know obviously from the fact that the the folks running the show cared deeply about about it and uh respected the show I mean we all were were fans of science fiction uh you know grew up from you know even little kids I mean I read my first science fiction book I think when I was like in first grade so it was just about the time that I really learned how to read um and that you know I mean that had a I think had a uh, a wonderful impact on on uh, the series because people cared about it. It wasn't just a job that we were that we were doing. Where it's uh, you know you can you can oftentimes tell when you see a show. It's just eh, it's, that doesn't quite get there. Or there's just something about it. It's you know the people weren't into it that made it, uh, and that really does come across on the screen. And that was never the case with B five. John, we're just starting to get into your role as producer on the series and how, and the truth is we don't have enough time or beer to really get into the importance and the detail and the nuance of, of your efforts that, that truly transcended Joe's words into a visual image on the screen. But if I may, I'd like to take a, a side path here. You also had the great opportunity to direct a few episodes. Tell me about that experience. Um... Well, it was about the most fun that I had with my clothes on. 
it was it was you know it was a very fun experience and um, you know a great time to uh, you know put my hand at, at you know putting a vision of a of a story of one of Joe's stories you know down onto onto film and um, you know it was. You know, I, I don't know what else to say about it. I mean, I, you know, I had a um, a lot of fun because in in each of my episodes there are um, little homages to uh, some of my favorite feature films, and um, you know, those are those are fun to kind of sneak in sneak in there and let people try to figure out if they can figure out what uh, what film it was from. But you know, everyone was you know was supportive the you know the cast and the crew uh you know it was all part of the i guess the family of uh, of Babylon 5 and it's it was um you know i you know quite fun it didn't uh, i think for for me to be able to live up to the rules that i that i laid down for every other director out there of you know no overtime and and uh and everything like that was was uh you know made me feel good that i was able to to, to <laughs> stand up to my own rules. Um, I also was the one director that shot the least amount of film for uh, for Babylon 5. We allowed a uh, 7,000 feet a day, so that would be like 49,000 feet, and I think that I probably topped out at about 29,000 for each one of my, you know, each one of my episodes. You so, cheap this, bastard, you. Well, no, I just want to, you know... <laughs> The thing was, was you know, a lot of the directors would come in and they go, well, you know, okay, what are John and Joe going to do to me when when I turn over my cut and do it? And so they would, you know, kind of have these ideas. And I just, you know, I Joe and I would talk about the scripts when they would, you know, they would come out of the word processor and and say, okay, I want to do this and this, and you know, okay, yeah, that's cool. And so it it made for you know almost a direct line in 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 what the what the episode was about and and. You know, gosh, I knew the actors well enough to know if they gave me everything they got in a take, or whether we needed to redo it. So, you know, we could just keep on moving. And uh, you know, I, I, uh, you know, that's that is my one, probably my one regret about the series is that I didn't start before season four directing episodes. I would have, you know, liked to have done it probably, you know, season three or so. But it was a really fun. It was a really fun experience. And you know, I mean, the first one Joe gave me was, uh, you know, in game. And he says, uh, you know, if it doesn't kill you, it'll probably be a good episode. So. <laughs> John, you mentioned that you're a, raised a science fiction fan, as it were, coming up. So, buying into the idea of Babylon Five is obviously not difficult. But it's one thing to imagine such a sweeping grand space opera. It's another thing altogether to make it for television. At what point, looking at at the process, did you think, you know, what we can do this, we can make it work? I, I never, I never doubted it. Um, you know, I mean, we had um, a lot of my a lot of my career has, you know, before Babylon 5 had been on, you know, I'd been involved in a lot of shows, which were good examples of how not to do things. And, um, you know, one of the, one of the, the, the epiphanies was, you know, once you make, 
once you make up your mind to do something, you stay the course. It may not be the right decision, but an episodic television, you know, you're going to have, you know, in seven days, you're going to have your chance to, you know, try it a different way. And so it's, it's, you, you just have to kind of like say, okay, this is what we're doing in this episode and, and, and go for it. Um, the, I've also was Joe, Joe and Doug and I first worked on a, on a live action science fiction show that was for kids, which probably was <laughs> a mistake when you think about it, when you look back on it, cause it was pretty dark, but, um, was called Captain Power and the Soldiers of the Future. And yes. there be there was the first um television show that involved computer animation in uh, you know with some of the main characters composited with uh with the live action. And so, you know, it was so we were so worried about, you know, how expensive and how time consuming back in nineteen eighty six Seven, um, eighty-six, eighty-seven. That uh, you know, it was to do CGI. That we were really worried about what you know you could do and you couldn't do. And so we had we had a lot of kind of like do's and don'ts for the writers. And we ultimately figured out by the you know kind of like three quarters of the way through the through the the season. Uh, you know, God, we shouldn't be doing this because the guys are pulling their punches on the stories because they're afraid. And one of the things that we decided early on was you know in in Babylon 5 with the writers and, you know, after Joe started writing the, you know, all the episodes himself, even with Joe, you know, write the story and we'll sit down and we'll figure out a way to do it and if we can't, we will come back to you and say, you know what, this bit right here we can't do. It's just going to take us outside the envelope. So let's, like, think about another way to do this. And that was how we approached looking at... um, you know, looking at putting this thing on screen. The other was when we when we had the opportunity when um, you know Ron around 1990 discovered the video toaster the, um, and started playing with that and realized that you know, gosh, we could do all of this as computer animation and do it easier than doing models and miniatures and the compositing that you have to get in with all of to with all of that stuff. Uh, and we all of a sudden we realized we could do shots that gave you points of view that just were not possible on television previously. Um, and we embraced that. We looked for every chance to find a piece of technology that could could um, help us put more production value on the screen and you know give us you know more efficiency in you know how we spend our money that we could. And you know the the fact that. You know, John Acavelli and uh, almost everybody in the art department, and then including a lot of the guys in the construction department, all came from a theater background. And, you know, we had had, you know, some construction guys, coordinators from Hollywood kind of look at what we were planning to do, and, oh, my God, this is going to cost this much and that much. Oh, it's got compound curves in it. And, you know, they were afraid of this stuff. And, you know, theater people who are used to, to you know, having to build, you know, fairly sophisticated sets and everything like that 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 uh, don't actually have a lot of money to spend on their sets. They have to be very creative about how they do that. And, and oftentimes in plays that, that change locations over acts, they have to, you know, the set, you know, flips around, it turns into something else. So it was, you know, it, it would metamorphose into something else. Well, that was the way that our art department went after, went looked at, 
you know, dealing with all the different places that we had to go in Babylon 5. And, you know, they looked at it differently. They were not in, you know, had not been brought up in a, a Hollywood construction community that, you know, could only do something a certain way because this is how we built sets for for television shows forever. Um, the same with the folks in uh, in Wardrobe, Ann Bruce and Kim Holly and Linda Hughes. Uh, all these gals came from, you know, from a from a theater background. And in fact, Ann, Ann and John had worked on several productions together. And one of the things that they were incredibly gifted at was matching textures of clothing, of wardrobe, with uh, textures of our set, which gave another aspect of visual richness to the show, which you don't see in some of the uh, uh, shows that... Um, you know, everybody wears spandex. <laughs> so, I mean, that these are these are these are all things. I mean, you just look at it. You, you, you're not. A, you, you can't be afraid to of of what's on your plate that you have to achieve. You can, you know, realize that you can look at solving problems in a myriad of different ways. There is no one right solution or wrong solution. There are just choices that you make. And that doesn't mean that the choice that you made is any more correct than, than the 12 that you didn't make. Those are just opportunities that you can't take at this moment. You may have a chance to do that a little later, but, but uh, you know, you have to make choices. So how did you approach the problem of every year fighting for funding to keep the show going? Um, well, the, the fighting for funding was, was not so much the thing is, is we had to know that we lived up to, you know, that the show delivered to the business plan that was done by the, by the television sales guys. And, um, the, um, um, they, you know, if we did not deliver revenues that, uh, you know, exceeded what it cost to make our show, we weren't going to come back. So, I mean, that was, that was, that was it. I mean, they had to give us little bits of increases because, you know, our cast our cast contracts had salary bumps built into that. Uh, the uh, and you know we had uh, you know union bumps for you know directors and and things like that. And and you know our probably our biggest you know probably our biggest bump was. Uh, you know, from the first season to um, the second season, they gave us a huge increase, you know, figuratively speaking. I mean, it was, uh, hang on, I can tell you how many percent it was. Uh, they gave us a 20% increase in our in our budget. Because they saw they they were seeing things that they liked and they were getting you know responses that you know were really positive, um, you know. But still, um, by the end of the fifth season, with uh, you know with Bruce and and uh, you know Tracy Scoggins on board, and I mean everybody at the end of you know like five year contracts. I mean they've been you know the show was still less than half of an episode of Deep Space Nine. So, did the did that cost also translate over to Crusade? Um, no, Crusade. Well, Crusade. We started it 
pretty much at the same level um, that uh, the last season of Babylon 5. And uh, even though we had, you know, we, we, we had, you know, different challenges with Crusade, uh, you know, we had to build a whole new ship, uh, the Excalibur. And, uh, you know, our plan, just like with Babylon 5, um, you know, was we would, you know, had Crusade ran on uh, to, you know, more episodes and more seasons, you would have seen more and more of the ship. We would have just built out more of it over time. And, um, you know, we had, by the time we got to, you know, doing Crusade, we had such a huge stock of scenery elements and everything like that that going to other planets, uh, you know, other worlds and everything like that was not daunting at all because we had so much stuff from which to draw on to create things. What were the what were the more difficult challenges with Crusade as compared to Babylon 5? Well, Babylon 5, we were at Babylon 5 and the stories came to the space station. On, uh, you know, on Crusade... Um, it was, you know, it was a traveling show. It was much more like uh, like Star Trek in that you were visiting a different world every week. So that world had to be realized. Uh, those uh, inhabitants or whoever you you uh, encountered had to, um, you know, had uh, you know realized completely. And if you had a, a ruined city or or you had a culture that was there. That culture had to appear like it didn't just spring up for this episode. That it had, uh, you know, it had a past that brought it to today. And I think that's one of the things that was unique about Babylon Five. We tried to, you know, show the links back to the past that you know led us, you know, led man to where technology was with with Babylon Five. And so, you know, that was something that was always conscious with us. We had to show like things had continuums to them that they that they had arrived at a place from you know, from their past experience and everything like that, and that they were going to go on. Um, I think one of the other unique things that resonated with people and was, was also a, something that was that was absolutely, you know, sort of sacrosanct with, uh, with Ron and, and Joe and, and I was that we wanted everything to work, um, you know, in space uh, the way that physics mean that we would have to function in a weightless environment. The things that were very difficult for us to do were, you know, obviously to do scenes outside the space station where we couldn't really, you know, do weightless scenes with folks. But we came up with solutions to that. But, I mean, our spaceships all kind of moved that way. Um, you know, we've got, uh, we were recognized on two occasions for, uh, you know, our vision of the future of getting things kind of right by the Space Frontier Foundation, which is um, a group of of private industries that you know, do stuff in space. Uh, so, you know, those those kinds of details really add to the richness of a show. They add to the texture of the show. Um, it, sure, it's easy to make things fly like World War II fighter planes in space. It's if there was an atmosphere. I mean, they make, it makes for cool moves, maneuvers, and everything like that. But, you know what? When you work within the, a zero-G environment and you actually have things function that way, it can be just as exciting and just as thrilling and visual. You know, John, uh, a couple of weeks ago, we had Louise Kleba on the show mm -hmm. and talked with her, and she uh, she addressed that specific issue and just commented about how wonderful it was that our science appeared to be correct on Babylon 5 and, and that they got a big charge out of that. Well, they, uh, you know, I mean, that's one. Of, I think that's one of the reasons why we uh, developed so many fans 
uh, within the uh, you know within the NASA and uh, you know space community. Uh, you know, at at NASA for the time that we were in syndication before we went to um, to cable on TNT, the way that that we were uh, distributed to the stations across the across the country was by satellite, and so the folks down at Johnson Space Center and at, uh, and at Cape Canaveral down in uh, down in Florida, they would bag the signal <laughs> and uh, download it, and they would they would oftentimes have lunch and watch. Uh, an episode of B five on the big screens in Mission Control. Yeah, she told uh, us about that. You know, yeah. she mentioned uh, that they would call a code seven R. Right, and everybody well, who knew what that was would be there showing up. They would be there, and there was there was one um, there was one um, episode that they watched, and they didn't watch it in Mission Control because there was a there was a shuttle mission going on at the time, but they did watch, and it was the it. I'm kind of thinking it was the episode where the the Centauri's, you know, pummeled Narn back into the Stone Age with uh, where they were launching the big the big meteorites down onto the surface of the planet, and that was, you know, when Jakar got kicked out of the Council and you know became a you know an ambassador without a, without a portfolio, and um, I mean it's a very very intense episode, and these guys watched were watching this thing and it came to an end and the whole ground team that, you know, went out and met the shuttle when it landed and, you know, cracked the hatches, you know, got the crew out and and all of that stuff. They were all watching this together and they had to write immediately upon the fade out. They had to go out and go to work and they didn't have a chance to talk about it until after they had done all of their work and about six hours later and they all got back and they go, God, wasn't that an incredible episode? <laughs> and, uh, I mean, Louise was part of that crew. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know mm-hmm. if she told you guys about that story, but I mean, that was, you know, it was like, you know, it was like 12 of them and it was, they couldn't wait to get done so that they could talk about what they had watched. <laughs> John, I have, I have a two part question. One, the first part serves the uh, regular listeners of the Babylon podcast, and the second is just totally self serving. Uh, the first uh, that deals with an ongoing theme we have here at the Babylon podcast is that of alcohol. And I hope you don't mind, I, I share that you certainly have an uh, uh, affection for single malt scotch. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, actually, actually, Irish whiskey, really, if you want. <laughs> Would you also just briefly tell us about the uh, importance of uh, the Friday night beer on the stoop after we had wrapped the week out? Well, I mean, that's been something that 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 um, I worked on a on a series for the uh, Doug and I did a, a series for the the Disney Channel when it first launched its flagship. Um, uh, family series. It was called Five Mile Creek. It was uh, set in Australia during their frontier period, and about Americans and Australians that uh, ran a stagecoach line and a stagecoach stop down there. And and one of the things that the Aussies did every Friday night at uh, you know the kind of like the end of uh, the end of shooting was uh, you know they would break out beer and it would always be somebody's shout, and that's when they that's a shout down there is when. You know, somebody it's I'm buying the round for everybody, and so you know either the director would would uh, of that episode would you know shout everybody that night, or you know somebody in the production office, and we realized that that it you know kind of brought people together because they would talk about the week and and it was convivial and everything, and 
you know, I really thought that that was kind of an important thing to do uh, on B5 because we all worked very hard, and we, you know, one of the one of the things that that uh, I'm still very very proud of about Babylon 5 is we did 770 production days, and probably only 13 where we worked any significant overtime. We worked, you know, 10 and three quarter hour days. We didn't even, uh, you know, work 12s, so everybody could have a life and. You know, it's just part of, you know, having the beer with, uh, you know, for the crew and the cast was, you know, uh, and different folks would all, would often would often buy it, but we kind of started this tradition so that it was kind of like a little bit of thanks and, you know, hang out, have a beer, let's talk about what we, you know, what we did this week and, you know, just hang out. And it became, you know, a big thing. I mean, people would be, it, it's one of the things that bonded the community. I mean, the... At the end of Babylon 5, 75% of of the folks that started on day one were still there, mm-hmm. which is pretty unusual for for uh, for a television show. And it's mm-hmm. you know I think it's because you know everybody kind of everybody respected everybody else. Mm-hmm. Um, you know we may have had some tough times and some some you know some times that were uh, you know a little acrimonious, like when we got organized by the IA. But uh, you know we got pie at all of that stuff because you know that that. You know, that's the little stuff. That's not the big stuff. Um, and and you know, being able to you know have a you know have a beer and a you know and a, and a cigar and just kind of hang out with everybody, because that, I mean that's that was also something that was different about Babylon Five because the you know the guys in the front office, you know, didn't conduct themselves any differently with the crew that we didn't hang out. Everybody, you know, everybody ate lunch together, at the same tables. You know the you know Joe. You know, Doug, myself, would be eating with the grips and the electricians or the camera crew or the wardrobe staff or the cast, uh, you know, every, pretty much every day. And so, I mean, there was there was definitely kind of a a democratic feel to everything. Mm-hmm. It, was, it was important and it was special and it has yet to be uh, reproduced in, in my career since those days. I just haven't had that same situation, but God willing... To give the opportunity back, I will do it again. Well, you know, it's, and that's, you know, I think that's something that's worth that's that's worth stating is that, mm-hmm. uh, you know, television television series are, um, you know, it's hard to make a hit, and uh, you know, when you get something that lasts like this, it is definitely worth you know recognizing what was special about it and what you know brought everybody together and it's very tough to make lightning in a bottle strike twice mm-hmm. so the second part of my question is the self-serving one you know, <laughs> with the unique perspective that I, I was able to you know you and I worked so closely together and got to know each other so well but the thing that eludes me John Copeland is when you would pull into that parking lot every morning what was the thing about each day or each, you know, the production cycle was the same over and over and over, and we had certain days, certain things would happen. What was the one thing you really, really, really looked forward to and got a, got juiced about when you woke up in the morning that, you, oh, good, we're going to have the such and such meeting or the such and such thing's going to happen today? And then what was the thing that, that <laughs> you just could not get out of bed because you knew that day had such and such involved? I didn't really have days like that. I think you know every day I pretty much um, you know got up 
and out of bed because I, you know, I was going to do something that I liked to do. Um, you know, it was I, and it's it's interesting because you know my career. I don't really feel like I have a job. Um, it's a lifestyle, and that is is and as long as it feels like that, I never have a problem getting up and you know, getting out of there, whether it's at the crack of dawn or in the middle of the night to, to, you know, get up to go to work. And I, you know, I was, was, because Babylon 5 was special to me and the fact that we were making what I thought was a, you know, a special show, every day was a cool day. So I, you know, Jeffrey, there really wasn't one where I was like, oh, shit, I got to go do that. Um, I would say that, that, uh, you know, as after uh, Netter Digital went public, and you know, I became you know as the executive vice president of that and in charge of production on top of you know doing um, you know B five. Those mm-hmm. were not fun things. No, those were stressful days. There was an awful you lot know, on the plate. That that uh, you know that stuff was that stuff wasn't wasn't fun. The rest of but uh, you know that I couldn't say that for B five. I liked everything about it. John, how much of a thrill was it for you to be able to hold your very own Hugo Award? Um, oh, it's still a thrill when I pick it up. <laughs> I still remember we were our offices were over in um, um, over actually at the tel- where the Television Academy is on the corner of Lancashire and Magnolia in that office tower that's there, and um, we had just gotten you know word that we were getting picked up for uh, you know for a series and Joe was sitting in my office and he was saying you know it would be so cool if and he says I don't think this will happen but I mean it would just be so awesome if we were able to make a show that was good enough that we got recognized with uh, a Hugo and uh, you know it was like yeah absolutely I mean that's like you know to be recognized by the science fiction community is major I mean in, in some respects it's you know, and it's kind of cooler than an Emmy because there are way less people that have received Hugos than have gotten Emmys. Um, <laughs> and I still remember the uh, we were actually on a on a hiatus, and it was uh, um, I guess it was third season. And we had, you know, Joe went to Worldcon, and, um, you know, I went, actually went out of town with my wife and dogs and, you know, came back and uh, hit the answer machine. And so, uh, first time I ever heard Joe's voice squeak, or he had called to say that we had won a Hugo for um, Coming to Shadows. And, I mean, that was just, like, major. And then when, it, you know, the second time that we were honored, the the, the next year for um, Severed Dreams, the, uh, you know, and to, to realize that, you know, the number of, you know, things that have been recognized twice and, you know, back-to-back was a pretty small club indeed. And that, you know, it had been 44 years since something like that had happened, and it was Twilight Zone. It was... The last was the last uh, television program that won back to back Hugo's. 
So I said, you know, that, that was a, that was really a huge honor. And, uh, you know, the, the folks at Warner Brothers actually did recognize that because they took out a two-page ad in the trades to uh, congratulate us. And, uh, you know, so, I mean, they, they actually even kind of got it at that point. But the Hugo was a was a was really a big, you know, was a huge thrill, um, and I mean, it still it still is. And we're going to call that a break right now for our interview with John Copeland, and come back with the rest of that next week. If you have some comments you want to throw in, you can send us an email at babylonpodcast at gmail dot com, or send us a voicemail at two zero six three three nine. 338-2259. That's 206-338-2259. See you the Great War. Came upon us all. And you can also listen to us record this live as we record it Wednesday nights. You can get the instructions for that at our website, babylonpodcast.com, or join us in the chat room at irc.freenode.net, channel pound sign Babylon Podcast. We will see you next time on the other side of the gate. The preceding program is part of the Farpoint Media family of podcasts. To find out more about Farpoint Media and the many other podcasts available, visit www.farpointmedia.net. A world of audio wonder awaits you there.